Expedition 44, welcome back to our show with Matt and Ryan. Today we are launching a new series on the church. It's been a while since yeah. we've done this, kind of took a little hiatus. Yeah, we haven't been fighting. No, <laughs> we have no. emailed and asked if <laughs> I was still part of the show because Ryan's been doing some solo episodes. Yeah. Uh, I took a mini sabbatical to work on my dissertation and so that's already been there. So I've got a little break from that. So we're going to launch into a series on the church. You've probably also noticed that if you've been to Expedition44.com that there are a whole series of new articles down the right sideline. So if you go down there, you can see them. And for about the last month, month and a half, we've been writing about the church. And mm -hmm. so some people have kind of noticed that uh, we've been doing a little research and that has been prefacing the beginning of this series. So this church series is going to kind of tee up about i don't know maybe 15 episodes 15 so episodes yeah it's uh, gonna be a long one maybe the longest ever and so where do we start today is an introduction to the church where do we start with having a better view about thinking of the church yeah so um when we look at the bible and when we look at the word church especially people think of, of as a place that we go to um and you don't really find what the american church kind of looks like in the pages of the Bible. Yeah, where is that? And so we're going to look at, well, what are some of these concepts that we have? And this really isn't to throw rocks at the way we do church in America, but we're just going to look at, like, what does the Bible say? Where did maybe some of these things come from? Maybe what's a what's a better way to interpret these according to the biblical context? Yeah. And maybe what are some changes or frameworks for our, our thought process in um, being the church that we can implement then? That's a good way to say it. And I think... Before we preface this whole series, I think it's really important to say that Matt and I are, are really supportive of anything that mm -hmm. points towards Jesus. Yeah. And, and even if it's a messed up model, which is usually what we get, I call this kind of the evolution of the church or something like that. Even if it's not perfect, none of them are perfect, but mm -hmm. if, it, if it positively points to the Lord, we're excited about that. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, we also think that we should be more mm -hmm. towards what Jesus prescribed. Yeah, there's some things out there that we do, especially in the Western church, that really are kind of the opposite of what Jesus has called us to. And and I I work at a church as a pastor, and so this this series hits close to home yeah. a bit. I, I love the church I'm part of, but there's also parts of the institutional church in America that I I question and challenge quite a bit. Yeah, and this has been a hot ticket for quite a while now. Mm -hmm. There's been quite a few books written in the last 10, 10 or 15 years about kind of returning to a better scriptural version mm -hmm. of first century church or something like that. Most people have never heard of a lot of the authors that kind of write or speak mm -hmm. this way. If you go to a church, you're not reading the kind of content that you and I read regularly. However, Francis Chan is one that's kind of been on the hot seat for this lately, yep. saying, mm -hmm. you know, he doesn't really think that the way that America does church is very scriptural and has really made a huge statement yeah, of he left his mega church. leaving his mega church and starting all these smaller kind of home churches. And we'll get into home church too. I'm not necessarily yeah. saying there is one model or anything else, but that's what this whole series is really going to talk about is what are some of the dynamics of the early church? What are the ways that Jesus mm -hmm. said to do church? How are we doing it now? Mostly in America, but we're also going to look at more of a global footprint and yep. kind of get a better plan for what we might be doing. So, Matt, what are some of the topics in the series that we hope to hit on? Um, so we're going to do an intro today. Um, we're going to go actually through the seven churches in Revelation. Um, Jesus speaks to those churches about being a faithful witness and what he wants of his church and how they demonstrate the kingdom. So we're kind of going to use that as a foundation for, like, What's Jesus' vision for the church, yeah. and how does he call these churches that have gotten off track back into being a faithful witness? So that's going to kind of be our framework for the first seven episodes. Do an episode on each, each which is church. going to surprise people. Most most people I know, if they're starting to talk about the church, Revelation would not be where they would yeah. start. But maybe it's where they should start. Yep. Yeah. And we're going to go into things such as uh, leadership, authority, um, elders and overseers, um, deacons, apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher, that whole thing using spiritual gifts in the church and and what does the church describe actually when christians meet together what yeah. should happen right and so those are some of the things maybe we'll throw in an episode on tithing we're not totally set on the direction we're going here we're very dynamic yeah. and so if you want to email us some thoughts some questions you know or I'd even be a topic you want us to cover exactly we'd be happy to do any of that stuff so mm -hmm. 
We've, we've gotten some framework already trying to figure out what fits in here, but I think we're gonna end up trying to be as specific as we can going with our not leaving any rock unturned, having some tough conversations and kind of arriving at anything and everything church. So I think where we need to start, Ryan, is uh, the word church before yeah. we kind of get into some foundation stuff for um, looking at where we're going with the churches in Revelation. Yeah. Um, so um, let's look at the word uh, ecclesia. Yeah. So in Hebrew, this is kehila. And usually when people talk church, this is kind of what they think. Now, whether you think of ecclesia as a meeting or a body of believers, or you hear all the times, we are the church, you know, mm -hmm. that that kind of thing. Yeah. People usually go to like Matthew 16, 18, and I'll particularly frame the NASB version of it. Upon this rock, I will build my church, Jesus, kind of talking to mm -hmm. Peter a little bit. And so what does that look like? What, what are we talking about when we're talking about the church or the body of Christ is where we need to land. So in the Old Testament, there was a body of believers. And Matt and I are very intent on saying the Old Testament needs mm -hmm. to line up with the New Testament. So when I threw that Hebrew word out there, yep. some of you might have been surprised that I go right to the Old Testament because you think of the church as being a New Testament concept. Almost everybody doesn't think of the church in Old Testament thinking. But I want to go back to the Old Testament and say that in the Old Testament, you, you get this body of believers. God's going to use Moses to free... Israel to give them a new nation, a kingdom of God, and right away that gets mucked up. Mm -hmm. it, it gets all messed up. And so basically, God says, all right, I need some framework to keep you on a track of holiness. This isn't really my ideal, but you know, you can't handle my ideal right now. You need a little bit of discipleship, or shepherding, hand-holding. So let me give you some framework that you can start walking in to find holiness, and we call that the law. And so within the law, there are seven festivals. And so this picture is very different than what I would say the American church model looks like. And the framework is that your life throughout the week, every day, should be geared to be completely all in. And they would believe in a Hebrew, Hebraic way of thinking that when you're young, you work, and as you get older and older, you get closer to the ideal of God. So by the time you're an elder, an older person, your life would be completely not of the world and totally of the kingdom of God, even in an Old Testament perspective. And so some of the ways that they did that were to say, um, let's start by just giving God your first fruits. So the beginning of the week, you're going to give God your best. You're going to work on Sabbath offerings and, you know, make sure your tithe is in, is in place and things like that. And then the, the end of the week, you kind of go back to working in the world. Now, oh, I hear people preach about first fruits all the time. And that wasn't the ideal. That was like just kind of stopgap thinking. Let's get back on track. The ideal was that you would, wouldn't go back to your work week, so to speak, mm -hmm. that you were all in. And so in American thinking, we go back and forth on this all the time. Can you honor God in a worldly way of working? You know, can that be all in thinking and still have that? And, and I think the answer to that is very dynamic. I'm not going to yeah. seek to answer that. I think that's between you and God. But, but one of the visions of this is seven festivals. So there were seven festivals. Um, you would live amongst your family. Family was really big. Sometimes your family even incorporated those that weren't of the blood that lived around you, moved in together, things like that. And you worshiped as this family entity together. And then seven times a year, you would travel. Three of those were big festivals, so you might travel a long ways to be in the midst of the mega church, so to speak, of believers. The other four were smaller entities. You might consider that regional time, but in the Old Testament, that's really the only picture we get of these large congregational meetings. And so most of the time, you honored, you worshiped the Lord in what we would think of a church setting all the time in your small groups of family and home. Yeah, and so when we move into the New Testament, it's a kind of a similar picture of keeping with family and tracking as the body of Christ, uh, the family of God, and um, that's kind of what we refer to as ecclesia or church. Yeah. And um, a lot of people get kind of hung up with the Peter thing on uh, thinking Peter was supposed to build the modern church, but that was more brought to us by Catholicism and that yeah. rather than 
of what Jesus was actually telling Peter to do. Exactly. And so we have this word ecclesia, and it's translated as church in the Bible. Um, actually, like I believe it was Tinsdale and even Luther in their translations wouldn't even translate it as church. They translated it as assembly yeah. because they just didn't like that word. It rang too much of Catholicism like to yeah. them in their time. And so ecclesia in the Greco-Roman culture wasn't a religious word at all. Right. <laughs> um, actually, you might not wanted to use that word if yeah. you were within the body of believers. Yeah, so when you, when you got actually to, like, uh, let's say, I think it was Athens, um, the ecclesia was different people coming forth from their homes to a gathering where they met face-to-face and discussed the the issues of the city. That's yeah. <laughs> kind of yeah. what it was. And that, that was like an ecclesia. It was like a community meeting where everybody participated. Yeah, and in Acts 1932, it even takes the shape of like an angry mob type uh-huh. of thing. And yep. you also get the word in extra biblical materials more often associated with cult type practices yep. than anything else. And so it wasn't a bad word in yep. of itself. And that's why I think it's okay to, you know, I'm, I'm not saying don't use that word mm-hmm. or anything like that, yep. but it wasn't a spiritual word. So no, not at all. Yeah. So, so if we could summarize, I guess, what, what was Ecclesia? How does it connect the Old Testament and the New Testament? How, how, how would you like define it? Yeah. Like, like we hear called out ones a lot. What's your, what's your opinion on that? Do you like that interpretation? Well, it's really hard because in Hebrew, the word really means rescued. Mm-hmm. It means given it's, it's an Exodus motive. It means freedom. And in the new mm-hmm. Testament, that's really supposed to mean what it is. So mm-hmm. when you say called out, Matt and I are really big into allegiance language. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that when you pledge to follow the Lord, this was, was a living sacrifice. It was literally a li- living sacrifice in the Greco-Roman yeah. time when they were called out. And so when I look at that, that's the way I want to interpret it too, that we should be called out of the world. And we're totally, we're, we're always having this tough conversation is, how much of the world are we in and how much are we not? Right in the middle of this series, we're inviting Keith Giles back in mm-hmm. and we're going to have that conversation with yeah. him of how how much is our church as the body of believers supposed to be immersed in this culture? How much are we supposed to be in our own kingdom? Are mm-hmm. these rival kingdoms? Is there a place to try to win your world back? I mean, eventually it's all going to be reclaimed back for God, yep. but... What does this look like? What parts so, stay, what parts go. Yeah, <laughs> That's exactly. Gotta say, and that ties in really well to where we're going first with Revelation of being called out because uh, in our series here, there's seven churches that are in the midst of the Roman Empire and also facing some Jewish stuff going on in, in the world there as ones that are called out or call, uh, called forth for God's kingdom. And how are they supposed to live disentangled lives from the Roman Empire and live for the kingdom of God. And Jesus speaks to these churches and unveils his true purpose for them where they're falling a little short. So why would we start with Revelation? Matt just preached at our church uh, this weekend and he preached on Revelation. I think most people, when they hear Revelation, it's like they're, they're just gonna scared, touch that. scared out of their mind, you know? And, and, and we decided to start this whole series with a look into Revelation. So I kind of want to just take a moment and explain why we start in Revelation. Like, you know, I I don't know that I've read too many posts talking about the modern church or where we should be or where Mm -hmm. should we go in the book of Revelation, yet you and I don't want to start anywhere else. Like, we think it's absolutely crucial to start in the book of Revelation. Tell us a little bit about Revelation and why this is so important to our our church today. Yeah, so we're going to try to take some practical things from that of how to be a healthy church, because I think Jesus describes to these churches that some are healthy and some are not yeah. of the things that he approves of and the things that he disapproves of. Yeah. And maybe we can use that as a temperature gauge for our churches. And I think that that's really important because the, the church, Jesus way, these new creation communities, these heavenly cells have been yeah. planted and the apostles have gone out and spread the word of Jesus of how, when they walked with him, how he taught them to walk uh, and yeah. they're supposed to do it the same way. And, and it seems by the time that, these churches come along they've gotten off track yeah and so jesus through john is correcting the things to get back to the way in the gospels when he walked with his disciples and taught them how to how to live as called out followers of him true disciples of where they've fallen short so yeah um it's 
being written by John. Yeah. Um, so he writes this, and the dating is up in the air. We're yeah. going to get into this a little bit we've more We've done videos later. on the dating before. So too. whether you put it, you know, closer to like a mid-60s or even a hundred, you know, writing, mm -hmm. the idea is that some time has gone by since Jesus established mm -hmm. the church. So yeah. you're looking at 30 years, 60 years, something like that going on, and as John is writing, you get the idea that they should be farther along than they are. He pats him on the back, and again, we're going to get way into this, but he sort of pats him on the back and says, especially the first one, Ephesus, that you're you're doing a great job here, but you're lacking. You're lacking. You know, there, there's this idea that I expected more. Now, two thousand years later, I'm going to say not a lot's changed. When I write, when I read that letter to Ephesus, I think actually our church. I'm not sure we're even lined up with Ephesus. I think we're probably a couple clicks down from that as the American church. And 2,000 years later, I would think we would be in a better place, farther along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's being recorded by John. And John also has written some other work in the New Testament, we believe. that this John is the same John, the Apostle John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the Gospel of John. He's been exiled to the island of Patmos. He's probably about 90 years old when he yeah. writes this. Oral tradition tells us that John survived a political execution. He was boiled in oil for proclaiming the gospel that Jesus was king and Caesar was not. Yeah. And so it was basically seen as treason to the Roman yep, Empire. Yep. And you're, so, you're done. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's kind of who the author is of this. And so he's writing to these churches about their entanglement pretty much with society and how they should truly be uh, reflections of the kingdom of God that reflect the faithful witness, Jesus. And that's... So I hope you're it. following this because this is where Matt and I believe we are today. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we, we kind of hear people think that like, we need to win back America or, mm -hmm. you know, take it back for God or something like that. And I, I would say we couldn't be any closer to where John is writing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's writing to, you know, Ephesus saying, like, you should be a little farther. You should be mm -hmm. better in the kingdom of God, yet it still seems like you're very entangled yeah. in the earthly kingdoms. Yeah, and so Revelation is uh, what most people call is three things. So a prophecy an apocalypse or an unveiling yeah. and it's it's shepherding in nature so let's get back to biblical language one of the things that we do regularly on mm -hmm. expedition 44 is we say that we need to interpret according to the bible and nothing else and yeah. so when we interpret according to the bible these words that you just described prophecy apocalypse today they mean very different things mm -hmm. so i'll give you a, a brief explanation or example of this this last week um my boys and i went to tour the bat the civil war battlefields and mm -hmm. We would read quote after quote after quote, and one word that was used to describe the Civil War scene by those in the Civil War as they would be journaling and documenting it was terrific. And they would write things like, what, what a terrific bloody mess. And that didn't mean great mm -hmm. in the way that we interpret yeah. it today. Build today, we, we think terrific is awesome. That was terrific. You did a terrific job at the baseball game today. They didn't, that wasn't the interpretation of this of wartime. Terrific meant terror, full of terror, horrible. Mm -hmm. You'd never want to experience that. And so we would read these quotes one after the other where terrific could never have been interpreted back in that day mm -hmm. in the way that we interpret it today. So in that same mindset, you need to step back into the words and let's look at the biblical definition of the words and not take on the definition that we've made these words into be in mm -hmm. our culture and our time today. So let's start with prophecy. What does prophecy mean in a biblical context? Oh, I think we need to look at prophecy by the way it's used in the Old Testament. I mean, yeah. when you look at it, if you line up all the prophecies, let's say, that are in the Old Testament, and you tally them up for how many were about the present versus how many were about out. the one future. One mark here, one mark there, yeah. yeah. You'd probably come out with only about 5% of the prophecies in the Bible yeah. are about the future. Right. And yet we think, when we think of prophecy in our Western context, the Nostradamus type thing, is right. it's all about predicting the future, right. Right. where the majority of prophecy was about the present situation of Israel. And prophets were often referred to as covenant enforcers. Yep. So a prophet... Prophecy is really about what in the present do you need to change to come back into good covenant relationship with God? Yeah. And so that's the context of Revelation. And everybody makes Revelation out to be this huge prophetic book when I'm just going to just throw this out there. I don't think it was. I, I think it was more for the present mm -hmm. than it was for the future. And so in that sense, yeah. If you read it in the same way that you read any other book, the same methods of interpretation, hermeneutics, things like that, I think you would actually, by the end, 
have a very small part of Revelation being way out there in the future in the prophetic sense that we think of a, of a definition today. Most of it was a mm -hmm. biblical definition of prophecy, which was applied right then, right there, to what they were dealing with yeah, in the present. The, yeah, calling the church to action in the present in this dark world. Yeah. That's it. So what about apocalypse? We hear that language all the time. In fact, the word that's most associated with <laughs> apocalypse is zombie apocalypse. Yeah. We think crazy, crazy, you end know, of the world. end of the world, <laughs> shoot them up, whatever. Yet when the biblical authors use the word apocalypse, that's not really what it meant. Yeah, apocalypse really just means an unveiling, like pulling back the curtains, you know, seeing what's really going on. And that's what this is, is... The first line of Revelation, Revelation 1-1, is it's the revelation, the apocalypse of Jesus. Yeah. It's the unveiling of Jesus. It's seeing, it's to let the church see the world through the eyes of Jesus and the way that he sees things, and also for them to see him by the way he truly is and not the, the way that he truly rules, and not which is different than the way that Rome rules. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, it was interesting when cars first became popular, they still had this meaning for the word apocalypse. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it was like when they wanted to see what was under the hood or in the engine, this mm -hmm. was a word that was often associated with that. And so today, you know, why would you look at the car and say, you know, you know, let's, let's apocalypse the car, you know, like that wouldn't make any sense. Yeah. You'd look at somebody like they're crazy yet that's written over and over in the history books of like mm -hmm. seeing what runs the car. Let's, let's, pull the hood off and take a look at the inner workings of it. Yeah, and so this is also written in the genre of apocalypse, which was a popular genre in the first century. Um, so we have a bunch of writings like this, and usually these writings were almost, almost like a, a, a critique of political powers, hostile political powers. It's almost like what we might see as like a, a political cartoon in the newspaper quite yeah, often. Yeah. Very sat satirical. And yeah. so... Um, that time, you know, particularly first century, and this is one of the reasons why I over and over go with an early dating on it of, of pre-70 AD is because it comes off as, like Matt said, kind of a political cartoon, and a lot of them just wouldn't really fit after 70 AD. And so that it, it, it could still work in some yeah. ways that want to, you know, people that are arguing for a later date, but it really fits much better with an early dating because of the satire aspect of the writing. Yeah. Um, Michael Gorman, in his book, Reading Revelation Responsibly, which I think is a, one of the most amazing books um, on interpreting Big Revelation. Big upside-down kingdom <laughs> yeah. thinking, which we're huge yeah, into. Yeah. So he calls Revelation a theopolitical work, which he means that it contrasts God's way, his upside-down kingdom way of life. He calls that the way of the lamb or lamb power against the way of the world, so the empire, the beast. That's so, so good. So, that's, that, so good. that's the way that he... That's his framework for interpreting Revelation. Yeah. Now... Some of you guys know that I have a hard time in the Bible using the word pastoral anytime. Mm. It's really only used once. Even that's arguable. So, but Shepherding. I'm going to use it because because people understand it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a modern term. So, what I'm really talking about is those that shepherd those who are shepherding. So mm -hmm. that's my definition of pastoral, which I'm okay with using yep. the word pastor. So I'm going to call Revelation according to that definition a pastoral letter. And mm -hmm. so. It's very similar to most of the letters of the New Testament, where you get authors such as Paul that are going to be writing to those um, that are going to be shepherding the churches, mm -hmm. and they're going to be speaking life into that towards them. He's going to be shepherd those that shepherd. So Revelation is a pastoral letter. Um, John is writing to the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, we talk about futurism a lot and mm -hmm. you know this is kind of dispensational thinking and i often poke fun at this that most people know or think they know more about you know the church because of movies and books such as the left behind series than they do about reading the bible itself mm -hmm. and so one of the carryovers is that what when people think of revelations they take these seven churches and they try to you know try to put them into a modern day thinking and this is this is very American Western thinking. Mm -hmm. The rest of the world, I'm going to argue, doesn't think this way. They they don't try to do that. That would be a kind of a biblical atrocity to the rest of the world, and they would think that America is to totally self-absorbed for doing things mm -hmm. like this. Yep. And so it's a very it's it's an accurate criticism that yep. like it's it's this is America's problem of being so meistic that they think the world revolves around them basically. And so I'm going to encourage you to get away from that kind of thinking. So if I were reading this book the same way I'm reading most of the New Testament or even some of the satire of the Old Testament, mm -hmm. 
I wouldn't put the seven churches as the Russian bear or where does America fall into that. Like, I think that's pretty poor hermeneutics. Yeah. So some in history, especially since the Reformation, when they kind of came up with this historicist interpretation of Revelation, which evolved into kind of the futurist yeah. thing, um, they had to make these seven churches because they didn't know what they would do with them at the beginning of Revelation because yeah. it didn't seem to fit with the rest of that. Right. So they made them allegorical of they made up this church age and then there's seven different dispensations within this dispensation and like Laodicea is like today's church or something like that. But it's... I think really poor hermeneutics, uh, mainly because the approach only pays attention to the church in the West, right? And it ignores the global church. And if we believe the message of the Bible is applies to the universal church, yep. then you've basically taken the message of Revelation out for the majority of the world. So let me frame this a different way. It seems like it's clearly written towards the actual, actual churches in Asia Minor. So, <laughs> yeah. so what it what the Bible? If you just plain read it, people mm -hmm. love the word plain read. Yep. If you just plain read it, it doesn't seem like you'd want to apply that any other way. Yeah, it's the seven allegorical. churches of Asia Minor, and why would you do anything else with it? Yet, what a Western apocalypse style style zombie thinking does is. Instead of applying it to the seven churches of Asia Minor, they want to apply it to the whole world type of thing. Yeah. And it's really... They only apply to their context. <laughs> <laughs> so, But it's also interesting, the order that the seven churches appear in um, the book of Revelation was the mail route. It's the, the order of the, that they'd visit the cities, the mail carriers would. So, so they would you know, so, go up the coast, and then they would come back down to the valley in Laodicea, and then back over to Ephesus. It <laughs> makes the most sense. And this is why when I take an early authorship... I would say John wrote it. He's going to, you know, hand it off to the person that takes it to the scribe. Mm -hmm. The scribe's going to make their notes essentially because this scribe now is the representation or the preacher of mm -hmm. the word. So he's going to go on this mail route, which seems very clear as you mm -hmm. read the book. And he's going to likely stay at each one of these churches, make sure they get the message, and then kind of stay there to see that it follows through. So this takes some time. There's also some reasons when you get into this of why some of it might have an appearance of being written later. later. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we, we have this problem with the rest of the Bible, too, is what are scribe notes and what is the yeah. inerrant word of God. But that's for so another, another day, day yeah. another series and so, everything else. So let's just look at the format of what he, how Jesus addresses these churches. So um, each of the addresses to the seven churches have, are just start out with some kind of attribute about Jesus it directly applies to the, the issue that the church is dealing with. Yeah. So it describes Jesus in some way, which applies to their issue. Yeah. Cool. Um, then Jesus the unveiling of Jesus in yeah. the church. Uh -huh. yeah. yeah, and so the revelation. <laughs> so Jesus gives then um, a praise to the churches. Most of the churches get praised. Sardis and Laodicea do not get praised. Yeah. Um, this Actually, the seven churches are a chiasm. The, the second church and the, the, the... A couple of churches get praises, a couple of churches don't get praised. Yeah. So next, the correction. Um, the Jesus gives a correction. Smyrna and Philadelphia don't get corrected. Yeah. Are, it's kind of interesting. They get they get praised. Um, and we'll get dig into those. And then there's a reward to those who conquer, yeah. which is interesting language there. What, mm -hmm. what, what do you think that means? Oh, we'll get into that next week. We're going to, the next episode, we'll start off with uh, the Church of Ephesus. And so we'll dig into this conquering language. Um, Jesus ends each of these addresses with whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Yes. So he wants them to respond to what the Spirit is saying and how he, the Spirit is working in their midst. So we've already talked about the similarities. Mm -hmm. You know, that the, the church in America is really, Matt and I believe, is is kind of a mess. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it doesn't seem to be fitting where Jesus thought the church should be yeah. by now. And so when we're looking at these seven churches and we're, we're hearing what John is going to reveal Jesus into these seven churches, it actually gives us a great framework or a great launch pad to start of where are we at and how mm -hmm. can we be better? And I think the first question we need to ask is how did we get here? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so let's look a little bit at that. Um, so like most things, the church became institutionalized by merging with the world. Yeah. And we get a whole lot of this in the fifth century when Christian kind of Christianity became national religion, or at least had freedom of religion. The persecution stopped under Constantine, and eventually this led to 
um, the merging of church and state with the Roman Empire and Christianity. So there's all kinds of issues that this has caused for led, modern church. Yeah, led to a lot of problems. But we're just going to touch on a few of them right now, and throughout the series we'll, we'll kind expand. of get into there. We want to be careful that this doesn't look like we're continually throwing rocks at the church because we love the church. Mm -hmm. What we're doing this series for is to arrive at a better church, a challenge to individually and collectively as family entities represent the church and get to a better place. So, mm -hmm. so we want to be careful as we do this, but one of the issues is of professional clergy. And uh, mm -hmm. this is a place where I wrote a whole blog article about a month ago on Expedition44.com. And um, one of the problems is that instead of the priesthood of all believers, this has kind of turned into a shift of putting people on pedestals and mm -hmm. it's actually going the wrong direction so one of the problems that israel had right away is they you know had a theocracy and they essentially went to god and said we don't want a theocracy we, we want, want a king we want a king we want to put one person in charge mm -hmm. and you know that didn't work out very well mm -hmm. for israel we should have got the picture that that's not what the model of church looks like yet Today, 2,000 years removed, we actually look a whole lot more like Israel with the king than we do about the model that was given to us to go forward as a church. The next thing that really happened uh, after this time was there was a, a divide, a two-class system put in the, into the church. So you have the, lay, the clergy, the professional religious people, and then the laity or, or the, yeah. the congregation. And it developed this system of two classes, which created hierarchy. Yep. Actually, James Dunn said that the clergy-laity divide has done more damage to the body of Christ than even some of the most destructive heresies. Yeah, wow. And we totally agree with that. <laughs> yeah. As yep. long as the words are, we yep. totally agree. Yep. Another issue you have is the corporate buildings. And so there's a lot of temple language in the Old Testament the New Testament, and this is great language. And in, in the New Testament, we are the temple of the yep. Holy Spirit. And so... The, there is no longer a building. In fact, when I hear about this as tied into Revelation language, people are waiting for a new temple to be built on the mount so that it identifies Jesus is coming back. Yeah. And like, I just got to roll my eyes at that kind of thinking. We're not looking for another temple. In yeah. fact, we don't want another temple because mm -hmm. anything temple related outside mm -hmm. of our bodies is actually kind of a slap in the face to the Lord and to the plan that he set. And so in the New Testament, you see them migrate away from synagogue thinking. The synagogue became a place that was overrun by the world. You might notice Jesus had very little to do with the synagogues of the world. We'll see in Revelation about what Jesus says about the synagogues yeah. of Satan. <laughs> <laughs> and so we got a whole lot there. But really, when you think of the temples and stuff in the Old Testament, they were shadows of what was to come. Yeah. They weren't the thing that we should be striving after. They were just shadows of the more perfect thing. Yeah. And you get these collective families in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, that's what it's going to be about. It's, mm -hmm. it's all family language dressed from the Old Testament transferred into New Testament ideas that are that are worked through us being the mm -hmm. temple of the Holy Spirit. And you got uh, like merging of pagan holidays with Jewish and Christian festivals and that and kind of bringing the world into the, the thing that was supposed to be set apart and holy. Yeah. Um, an interesting thing is the sermon. Yes, the sermon. So I don't think the way that we attend churches today and we hear a sermon, which is really the gifting of one man, and I, I strongly believe in the giftings, obviously, mm -hmm. but I believe in all the giftings. And, you know, you kind of get into this, are there five-fold ministry of the church giftings? Were there 22 gifts? Or were there a whole lot more? The problem with the sermon is it brings everybody congregating to basically uh, one person using their one gift one day a week. Over and over and over. And the rest of the body and I think these are Frank Viola's words, are, are handcuffed yeah. from using their gifts because it, we've made it into whether how good a, a teacher or speaker that person is, but the framework of the way that we've built the modern church isn't for the entire church to come together and use their gifts, but it's to come recognize a few people on stage using their gifts and everybody else sits passively. Now, Matt's a music uh, praise and worship leader. Um, he's also administrative pastor, so he wears a couple hats there. But I will give the modern church a little bit of credit mm -hmm. for music leading, that this is a better picture representation of how the gifts could be used, that usually there's somebody kind of leading, shepherding, organizing, mm -hmm. things like that. You're your lead worship pastor, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. But they're putting in place kind of a rotation of the gifts. And mm -hmm. I don't know why in the modern church 
we've migrated towards that with music, but we haven't necessarily with the sermon. And there are a lot of churches that, that um, and I know our church is working toward this, is having a plurality of teachers, yeah. and which, which is good for the body. More biblical, yeah. Different perspectives. If you have the gift, you should have a platform to use it, yeah. is kind of the what, what we're getting at. So um, really, I think with the sermon, the Protestant Reformation, all of this, the Protestant Reformation had good intentions to fix a lot of these problems, but kept much of what Catholicism had, um, had changed, you know, like Catholicism kind of made things this yeah. way, which came out of kind of this Constantine merged thing. Yeah. And then the Reformation wanted to break off from that, but they still kept a lot of the Catholic stuff. So there's still like the clergy laity divide. Uh -huh. I think that's the best way to say mm -hmm. it. So in Catholicism, you had a, a priest, priest and the Reformation came and they're going to just change this to a pastor, but it's still, the, it's still the divide. And so the, yeah. The, the Reformation claimed the priesthood of all believers, but they kept the Catholic priest and just changed its name and kind of changed his role a little bit. Yeah. And so really, they still kept the clergy-lady divide. And then they also kept the buildings, or the, the need for the buildings. So uh -huh. in Roman Catholicism, you had these huge places that were really funded by the mm -hmm. state often and things like that. And then when you get to the Reformation, we see a divide of church and state. So, you know, in, in you know, particularly Roman Catholicism mm -hmm. in Europe, you're not going to get a lot of those same governmental mm -hmm. links, but you still have a lot of the same problems. Now, in a lot of high churches, even today, you kind of have, rather than the sermon being the center, you have communion being the center. Yeah. Even in some Protestant churches, like uh, Lutheranism does does that quite, quite a bit. But uh, Zwingli, who was one of the reformers, kind of removed communion from the center, moved yeah. it off to the side, and put his pulpit in the middle and it became all then about the sermon um and we love the teaching of the bible and we don't find anything wrong with that but it came down to then and we talked i talked about this a little bit in my sermon this last week is yeah. now since the reformation we have thirty-three thousand denominations and they're all kind of gathered around what's my pastor's theology right rather than getting around the body and blood of jesus in, in unity and and so we had the, all of these things and and more problems and in modernity now we also have the phenomenon of the megachurch, yes. and we have churches built like corporations rather than like families, and we have the CEO pastors, and we got boards of leaders, and the church looks more like corporate America than in like the world than it does what Jesus intended it to. Yeah. So these are some of the issues that we see with the church that, that we don't see as biblical, mm -hmm. you know, that they there, there should be a better model. Now, at the same time, is God honoring some of these things? You know, there's there's a... A church in our town that like I think just does a great job of bringing people out of darkness you know what, what I'd say is the mega church of our place and like I love it that they do that you know that they're they're amazing in bringing people out of darkness now we're gonna get into a little bit of an argument of do we have to stick with the first century church model or you know 2,000 years later I, I call this again the evolution of church is it okay to have different models more business-like and things like that and that's where everybody needs to make up their own decision but we're going to try to help guide people through that decision mm -hmm. and and i don't think it's any secret that matt and i would like to return more to what the bible actually says mm -hmm. than the evolution of anything yeah so let's get back to the start um so scripture describes the church with two primary metaphors um the first one is a body so literally it says that christ is the head where all the appendages and, and all yeah. that and it describes each gift as a different uh, appendage and we, there's the whole bunch of verses that we, i actually talked about it when we did our citizens of the kingdom yeah. series i did a, a a video on the ecclesia so we can go dig into the, you can yep. go to, if you want to dig more into the body metaphor i went into it pretty deeply yep. there um and and we can link that one yeah too. we can link that too the second one is the family yeah so so in the family um the chief metaphor it's pretty much the chief that is the chief metaphor yeah. in the New Testament, and that connects back to the Old Testament yeah. of families gathering, and we kind of get this in every single letter in the New Testament. Speaking so of it. we think very meistic, like I've mm -hmm. already said. So we we want to read the Bible as if it was actually written to and for us, both at the same, same time. time. That's yeah. that's the problem with uh, American culture is that I read the Bible as if it applies only to me, and mm -hmm. I often hear this with um, with communion is is you know this this act was done just for you mm -hmm. and as there is some truth to that it's a much bigger communal family picture yeah. than that yeah and that's what the two major metaphors in the bible for the church are communal rather than individual yeah and, it, and mike paul even says that if 
one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. If one part is suffering, the whole body suffers. Jesus says to Saul when he's killing Christians, why are you persecuting me? And so it's this whole thing. Jesus is in heaven at this time. And it's a whole image of the church is a community and Christ is the head. Yeah, yeah, much better. Mm-hmm. You even get that in the Old Testament. We, we often know when I say the sin of the camp, talking about Achan, like people understand that yet they don't make the correlation that that still exists within the mm-hmm. body of Christ. They write that off as Old Testament crazy nuance, you know, and they don't mm-hmm. think that there's still a representation of that today, but it goes both ways. People yeah. are both blessed and cursed, so to speak, by the community of believers. Yeah, and kind of a side note is pretty much all the, the yous in the New Testament are second person plural, it's y'all, yeah. where he talks to them. But uh, sometimes he does refer to the church as a singular you, which what he means there is that it starts with you, but it affects the whole community. Yeah. So throughout the New Testament, you kind of get this where usually the model is that they start with the whole church in mind, mm-hmm. then they go individualistically if there is any, which mm-hmm. often there isn't, and yep. then goes back to the church. So it starts with the church and ends with the church. And if there is a place for a meistic mm-hmm. type of thinking, it's very singular usually. Mm-hmm. So the bulk of the responsibility, actually, in the New Testament, we see for pastoral care and teaching and ministry in the ecclesia rests on the shoulders of all the brothers and sisters and not one single man or one pastoral leadership team. In fact, like Paul's vision is that the church is a body and every member has gifts and ministries that reflect Christ when they all come together. So one of my pet peeves is that almost every Christian knows the language, the Hebraic language of the priesthood of all believers. Mm-hmm. Like they, they have these memorized, they say it, they even, you know, preach about it and teach about it and things like that, but hardly anybody lives it. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're getting at is that we need to really return to the kind of thinking and believing that you live the priesthood of believers. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that um, in the New Testament, the word uh, Adelphoi, which means brethren or brothers and sisters, appears 346 times, and every time it appears, it refers to the whole church. Um, It appears 134 times just in Paul's epistles, which every time he uses it there, it's the local assembly. Yeah. And by contrast, though, the word elder only appears five times. Overseers only appears four times, and pastors only occurs once in the Bible. This is just startling to me. So when you're when you're going through a better biblical understanding of the Bible, we always say three hundred sixty-four to what's that five four nine ten major <laughs> so, in the major. So if we're, to 10. if we're gonna look at this, it's all about brethren, community, equality, and leadership. Paul stresses that over and over and over. How did we get to the point where we are today where 346 to 5, I think, or maybe 6, you said, yet every church today stresses the The, 5 or 6? Yeah, yeah, they stress the whoever's the the leaders. Yeah. Um, And in the New Testament, if you, when we have that corporate mindset and we put all the weight on these few people, um, it makes it more unable to carry out the actual specific functions of the one another's in the New Testament, which whenever a one another happens, it's to the Adelphoi, the brethren, the brothers and sisters are supposed to do it to each other. And I just kind of made a list of all the ones that like I could find quick here. And so let's just tag team it. Yeah, we'll go back of, and forth. We're going to yeah. machine gun rapid fire this. Here's but a bunch of the one another's. As we go through this, this is what the body of Christ should, should and does. So the first one is be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Live in harmony with one another. Love one another. Edify one another. Accept one another. Instruct one another. Greet one another. Agree with one another. Discipline fallen members. Organize church affairs. Care for one another. Prophesy one by one. Abound in the work of the Lord. Serve one another. Bear one another's burdens. Again, bear one another. (laughs) Bear with one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Submit to one another. Forgive one another. Teach one another. Admonish one another. Encourage one another. Warn the unruly. Comfort the feeble. Support the weak. Exhort one another. Incite one another to love and to good works. Pray for one another. Confess sins to one another. Offer hospitality to one another. Be humble toward one another. Fellowship with one another. So that's kind of the list that I I came up with. Now the modern corporate institutional structure of the church makes that extremely difficult to live out the one another's when we have this 
view of professional hierarchy, hierarchy <laughs> religious yeah. people, yeah. power structures. How can you do the the one and others? We often expect our pastors to do these things. Right, right. Or these four pastors on staff should do, do all of this, these. while the rest of us just come and listen. Yeah, if there's someone in the hospital and the pastor doesn't visit, someone usually gets upset. I I've experienced like the small group will go visit them, but they will be upset that a certain person didn't come visit them. Right. <laughs> but we're all part of the body of Christ. Right, right. <laughs> so, so, yeah. There's a couple metaphors for the church in the Bible, and we're going to look at these two. And so there's two of them I kind of want to really hit on. One of them is a house, and the other is the bride. And we all know the bride language, mm -hmm. but the house language has kind of gotten lost along the yeah, way. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this when we were talking about buildings, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, and living stones built up together. In Jesus Christ. So it's a place for God to come and dwell. So we've got a house and a bride, but I'm actually going to call those kind of the minor metaphors. Mm -hmm. The major thrust of metaphorical family language body. of the church is the family body. Yep. So the big idea is that the church is not an institution. It's an organism. It's, or it's organic, yeah. not an institution. So um, there was equality there. No hierarchy between like clergy and lady. There's no divide. Yeah. The gifts of the entire body were active displaying Jesus. They met face to face throughout the week in relationships. And yeah. that's kind of the, the big idea of what the New Testament and the Old Testament communicate of what the ecclesia was supposed to be. Yeah. And we get into a lot of church unity discussions of kind of thinking about this of why can't people just get along better. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot of casting out of the kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, the important thing is that unity is always based on Christ. And we've actually mm -hmm. kind of lost that allegiance, obedience language. We turned it into almost like checklist. a checklist or even a pledge on getting salvation. And then that's it. We've left mm -hmm. it at the door where it's really a lot more than that. It was, it was about fellowship in the body of believers being united as one, taking care of each other, being, you know, in blood covenant together. And mm -hmm. we've lost that covenantal kind of thinking today. Yeah, I think if people are accepted by God because they've repented and pledged their allegiance to Jesus, then if a person has done that, if they're accepted by the Lord by doing that, then he or she is part of the body of Christ, and that should be the basis on which we accept them into our fellowship. Yeah, yeah. And we get so much sectarianism as a problem. I mean, Paul was even dealing with this in Corinth. Um, he, he says, it's like, oh, some of you follow Peter, and some follow Paul, and some follow Apollos. Yep. But shouldn't we all follow Christ? Is Christ divided? Yeah. I mean, the obvious answer is no. <laughs> right. And it really, like, pains me when I see, particularly because Matt and I are so into theology, for lack of a better word, that mm -hmm. we see divisions in church among theological beliefs, eschatology, politics, yeah. race. Even on Adam. <laughs> versions of the Bible. I mean, things that are kind of really stupid, silly. Yeah. yeah. And so, yet those are the things that are going to divide the unity of Christ over and over again. So this week, as I was, I was reading a little bit in Philippians, and I found it really interesting in Philippians 1, verses 27 and 28, that um, Paul says to them um, to have conduct worthy of the gospel. Yeah. And he describes that as, like, basically taking on Christ's self-sacrificial love. But he says that when you truly live this way, it's, it, that is what defines unity in the church yeah. towards one another. And we'll talk more about love for each other next week um, in, with the Church of Ephesus. But it says that it's when we actually do that, when the world sees that, it's proof that the world is under condemnation and they're under judgment. Yeah. But it's also proof that we're saved. Yeah. So I think in just regular language, and again, I, I'm just mm -hmm. I'm being careful yeah. in the way that I say this, but most people today that I know, particularly the ones... Well, outside of a church, but even inside mm -hmm. of the church, what they know of a church for is more of the fighting and the people not getting mm -hmm. along and things like that. It doesn't look like the Christ of love in the Bible. Yeah, and I see often something that I heard, I can't remember who said it is, that the church is more known in America for what they stand against and what they stand for. Yeah, yeah. So this whole preface, I mean, if I could say we're doing this series for one reason, I would say it would be to return to the love of Christ to everybody. That, mm -hmm. that, that the whole world might see us as ambassadors of love. And I love the way you ended your sermon and basically saying that, like, that needs to be insatiable. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the church, I think the church needs to be so beautiful that the world can't resist it. Yeah. And, it. and by doing that, through our love for one another, it will be our best evangelism tool. Yeah. 
I mean, how beautiful would that be? So, so what we want to do is we want to paint a better picture. I love those terms because the Old Testament is full of mosaics, and mm -hmm. that's that's a kind of picture that was made out of rocks and stones mm -hmm. and sand and dirt and things like that. But the idea was was that it was going to be a picture of a good way to live, and that's exactly what the law was. That's why we call these mosaics. And so, so what we want to do is take the the word that we've given in scripture and we want to kind of put bits and pieces of things mm -hmm. together and paint a better picture of what the church could be today. Yeah, I think the big thing is is that we we need to make disciples rather than converts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've I'm on my my third book on this is the way series. The first one was released earlier this year. The second one's going to be released I think within a few weeks here. The third one is probably 23 and the whole preface of, of this series of books is to return to the model of discipleship that Jesus said the preeminent calling of the entire New Testament and I'm even going to say the Old Testament there too was intimate relationship with God that you would leave the things of the world and be all in and that you would bring others to that same kind of all in thinking and the church in whole particularly in America has really lost this. I'm I'm preaching on Zoom next week to a church in Pakistan, and I would say their church is there. They're living it out like they. It looks like a, a first century church. They've literally like sold possessions and like gotten on the same page, and they're all in, and they're still kind of evangelistic, and that they're you know doing these big groups and sometimes offering food to the community and everything else. But like I I look at how they've just poured in. And I don't really see a picture in America of that kind of family body of Christ. And that's what I think would be great to get a mosaic of, to take a picture of. How do we return to this? Yeah, so I think if we can get back to investing in relationships rather than rituals, being an organism rather than an institution, yeah. having all the gifts of Christ on display rather than just a couple of people using their gifts every right. Sunday, and creating disciples rather than converts will be on a better path. Yeah. So... We kind of want to get away from all the American, modern, Western things that have kind of taken away the flavor of the first century church. And again, I think that God is dynamic. I think that he's He's okay looking at the church, seeing a little mm -hmm. bit of this evolution in modern, modernity, but at the same time, let's not get away from the core. So mm -hmm. what what does it look like? if we paint this picture. So we're going to be talking about these things, this whole series, and there's more, but just so that we're all tracking on the same page, what would what would a first century church look like or what could it look like within America? So I think we can start with like every day completely wholly giving yourself to Jesus and the calling to be a disciple and to make disciples by by his definition and not by the world's definition yeah. of it. I often think of time, treasure, talents. We think about those words all the time, and a lot of people use them regularly. But what does it really look like if all those things are given solely for Jesus? Mm -hmm. Today, I mean, the biggest example, and people argue with me on this all the time, is that if you're giving your work 50 hours a week, some people are going to say, well, I give that to Jesus every time. But it, it still is a problem because you can't, you can't argue that if you're in 50 hours of a worldly occupation work, that those are 50 hours that, that could have probably been spent better for God somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And we talk a lot about training up our kids as the primary people we disciple. Yeah. It starts with your family as our core act of making disciples. Yeah, and we see this lots of ways. I mean, we see people that, you know, even within the church, people that do discipleship classes and everything else, mm -hmm. yet they've never had those discussions with their kids. And so yeah. it's kind of backwards thinking. Yeah, and so like at our church, we, got, we have a great school that, teaches our kids about I mean a, a lot of people don't even send their kids to a Christian school so they're getting more instruction from the world than yeah. they are from the people that should be raising them as as disciples and a Christian school is great mm -hmm. but I would actually say that a Christian school is kind of equal to the law it was it was a better it was a first fruits viewpoint but the mm -hmm. better thing is what if you just said the parents I'm, I'm gonna take the next 10 years off and just train my kids myself mm -hmm. that's kind of the calling of the Bible in an ideal world yeah um, next is like living intentionally and intimately with God, uh, presenting deeper devotion to the King, and that starts like within your family. Surround yourselves with ones who, who are like-minded and kingdom-minded, and having that core community of family 
Yeah, I call this swimming with Jesus. Yeah. To be surrounded, immersed in Jesus so that you're, you're no longer of the world. Now, mm-hmm. we all get that eventually the plan is that all things might be reclaimed and mm-hmm. that we are agents. We are, you know, benefactors of that in the kingdom as a royal inheritance. That's part of the plan. But so many of us are just way more in the kingdom of the worlds than we are in the kingdom mm-hmm. of God. And I think the essence is that we need to flip those tables. We need to be mm-hmm. totally in the kingdom of God and let the kingdom of the world see what's beautiful inside and come to us. Mm-hmm. Another thing is like when we gather as the church, um, everybody bringing their gifts, being yeah. prepared to have something to share. It says that each person came with like a song, a scripture, a spiritual song, like bring their gift. If your gift is hospitality, yeah. H- host, bring some food. If you, you have a gift of like cooking, if your gift is administration, help plan the gathering. Like everybody brings something, you yeah. know, In, instead of like, like we, we say quite a bit that this stuff can't be done in rows. It needs to be done in circles. Yeah. It's so face we, to face. We do these nights called Expedition 44 Praise and Worship Nights. And we, you know, kind of do a return. It's basically, they're kind of around the festivals. Mm-hmm. And so we go back to Old Testament thinking. We invite people to come to the range, the compound, and, mm-hmm. you know, set up this stuff. And it's really just, we want to see gifts. And we, mm-hmm. we've started seeing all kinds of crazy stuff. Oh, coming, yeah. You know, people bringing this or bringing that. And they're out of the box. And it's beautiful. And I think that's a better picture of what it meant for everybody collectively family style to be bringing of the gifts to a church body yeah um the big thing is like our small group we meet regularly as a spiritual family and kind of we have this community it might not be all of us at the same time it might be we're getting together with a couple families and going kayaking or yeah. or playing airsoft or yeah. or but it usually eventually comes around to us doing something around god's word and bringing it all into Jesus. It's really interesting when you just, when you're all on the same page, that mm-hmm. this, when we meet, it's because of Jesus. Uh-huh. It transforms the way that you meet. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's times where we say, you know, hey, Nick, do you want to have a, a something ready to talk about over a campfire that night? But there's also times that we don't, and it goes this way anyway, yep. because that's the way that we've conditioned ourselves in Jesus to be wired. Yeah, and like we had this uh, Memorial Day barbecue over at my house. Uh, the group came over, and like, the conversation naturally went to Jesus. There's no agenda. <laughs> and, then, and then you and Phil had a push-up challenge yeah. where you pushed each other, and then that turned into your, your blog post the next day about encouraging one right. another in the Lord, and yeah. it, it, it just goes that way. The when domino effect. Yeah, boom, the domino boom, boom, effect. Boom, yeah. So, yeah. yeah, pretty neat. Um, this is kind of what we said about living living sacrifices, mm-hmm. that, that we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that everything we do should really we should be on a mission that everything speaks jesus Mm -hmm. and that that's insatiable love to everybody else that they look at that and they desire that more than anything else and so the big thing is our vision with this series is that we we want to present and paint a picture of god's ideals of the way that we see them in scripture and so what would it really look like if you and your spiritual family you know live this way um and i think that we could transform the church in america or present something better in a better way of thinking yeah and i've i've had this i've had this conversation in my head for a long time that like we don't believe truly as a church that this works and i think that's one of the main problems is that jesus gives us this picture and all the new testament authors reiterate it we see examples of it working yet we don't really believe that it works we just settle for something less yes and so i would say regularly like if we all of a sudden just and i'm just going to give you some some basic ideas is that most american christians are are totally enslaved they're they're enslaved by a biblical definition of enslavement they haven't been set free by an exodus motive type of thinking they're still enslaved in their jobs they're enslaved in all parts of the world they're enslaved to their their car payments and their mortgage payments and everything else when jesus encourages us to be totally in his kingdom, living in his kind of freedom, it looks very different than what we look like today. So is it possible? A lot of people argue, well, I've got to own a $600,000 house. How can I not own that? My theory, and we're going to be working through this the whole session, is what if today you just decided to say, I'm going to transition my life into what this looks like? Can can it be done? And I would argue it, it can totally be done. Maybe you need a body of believers to go on this journey with you. Mm-hmm. That's the biblical yeah. example perspective. Yeah. So in short, 
we are the church whenever the church gathers its guiding and functioning principle is simply to incarnate christ Very and good. reflect him to this world love it so we're super excited about this series we are going to go 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 through it and i'm glad that you guys can follow along track with us let us know if you have any questions email private message however you communicate with us we'll get it and we'll speak to those things maybe we'll even do a whole series about your question or your thing we're ready to go and we think that as many videos as we've done we think that this actually could be the most life-changing series that we've ever done for the church the body of believers those that are intimately given in their relationship with god and to bring others into that relationship with god which is the calling that Christ has for each one of us. May God bless you and keep you.